mindfulness mode. People would trade places for it, you know, to have what you have in a moment. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and mindfulness life coach, Bruce Langford. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I am very excited today because, well, as you know, I love art, I love music. My guest today also loves art and absolutely wanted to be an artist when he was younger. And so he still kind of immerses himself in art uh, sometimes, but he's actually a surgeon today. He's a doctor, he's a surgeon. I am so excited to have Dr. Hassan Teta with us today. Dr. Teta, are you in mindfulness mode today? Absolutely. Yes, I'm in mindfulness mode. <laughs> and you really sound like it and you really seem like you are completely grounded and completely relaxed. And Dr. Ted, I just want to share a bit about you with our guests. Uh, like I said, Dr. Teta is a surgeon and he specializes in heart-lung transplants. And he's also the author of five books. His newest book is called The Art of Human Care. And it is a beautiful book, as you might have guessed by my reference to his interest in art. It uh, has gorgeous pictures in it, and it really spoke to me when I read this book and enjoyed every page in this book. And this book takes healthcare to a new level by addressing human care. And uh, so we'll be talking more about uh, Dr. Teta and where he's been working and what he's been doing. He's recently served as command surgeon for the National Defense University, but he's done so many impressive things. Dr. Teta, what does mindfulness mean to you? Uh, very good question, Bruce. I, I think uh, like many of your audience members, it means having the presence of now and having a grounded Uh, that gives us an awareness of where we are in the world. At least that's how I like to think about what mindfulness means to me. And to be action-oriented in sort of the moment in which I'm at. So right now, I am with you. I am with your audience. And we are speaking about something that I'm absolutely passionate about. Healthcare, human care, art, and making a positive difference in people's lives. So that's where I'm at right now. And that's uh, sort of my mindful mode right now. (laughs) Well, it's so great to have you here, Dr. Teta. And uh, speaking of art, you got your daughter involved in your project, in your book, and she was eight years old at the time. Tell us what that was like. Was she excited to become involved? What was it like? She was a bit dubious. I wouldn't say excitement was the word. Uh, but, you know, to, to answer your question in, in, in great context and, and with even more full color, it, it's necessary for me to take you back a little bit to how this art and human care came about. And more importantly, maybe share a story that, you know, I had in my life when I was sort of her age. So I was uh, just about to graduate from middle school and I was very excited about art. I loved art. I was a graffiti artist. Uh, my tribe of people sort of that I hung out with at the time were all artists. And so it was a very eclectic group of individuals. And in New York City, where I grew up, you know, the little town there called Brooklyn, I applied to a high school called Art and Design High School. And you had to take a test and have a portfolio. And I worked diligently for months to develop my portfolio. I got accepted to Art and Design High School. I was over the moon because I was going to get an opportunity to take the train, you know, to high school in Manhattan. It was like a really big deal back then for me. 
and plus uh, many of my friends were going there and uh, and so i brought my uh, my acceptance to my dad and at that time you know back then you had as a new york city student you had to have your parents sign off on the school that you would go to and i said dad i got into art and design high school now my parents it, it must be said were west african immigrant parents very humble beginnings, <laughs> you know, immigrated here with very little. And so here's your son coming to them saying that he wants to go to art school. <laughs> so you didn't go over very well. Uh, and he summarily said, no, you're not going to art school because you'll never make a living doing that. And instead he directed me to go to the other school that I also got accepted to, which is Brooklyn Technical High School, which was, an, which was a science and engineering school. He said, you're gonna be a doctor, so you go that way. So as you can imagine, to answer your question about my daughter, when I realized early on in her life that she had this affinity and what I believe as a talent for art, I nurtured it and I told my wife, I said, let's nurture this. I'm not gonna do what my dad did to me. And if she has to stay on the payroll for the rest of her life, it'll be okay, because I really want her to, to blossom as an artist. And so, I, and thinking about this book, and there are so many uh, different events throughout life that are manifest in the book, uh, certainly the opportunity to work on uh, on something that will memorialize the bond of art, love, and my daughter's, uh, you know, uh, talent uh, was just an opportunity. It was just magical. So, yeah. Well, you told that story in your book and it just really touched me. It really reached out to me. And I thought, man, you know, you must have just been so crushed. Did your dad not know that you had wor been working toward admission to that high school? Yeah, I'm sure it didn't matter. No, because <laughs> it probably, like, probably lost. But, you know, fortunately, uh, and I learned this obviously, uh, you know, throughout my career, but when I recognized and started to appreciate what healthcare was all about and, and medicine and really surgery, I realized that there was such an enormous amount of creativity that's just inherently involved in surgery. And so you do become an artist. You know, you call you call you hear people talk about the art, the art and science of medicine, excuse me. And it really is an art because there is so much creativity you have to you have to bring to bear sort of this approach in in looking at everyone as an individual and, and be creative in terms of how you're going to get your message of how they should take care of themselves, you know, and, and, and what you're going to bring to bear in terms of all your tools that you've learned. So there is definitely a science foundation, but I really believe there's a lot of art to medicine and certainly there's a lot of art to human care. You really sound happy about the fact that you took that direction. But I want to ask you, when you were a young teenager, was there an element of mindfulness that you used to somehow look at this as a positive because you got into this high school and everything was about math and science? What was that like? Yeah, it was very different. Uh, but, you know, the good thing about uh, Brooklyn Tech, and, and uh, it was really an awesome opportunity. I mean, and looking back in retrospect, had it not been for that, formative experience in such a really good high school, I probably would not be where I am today because, you know, there was a discipline and an edict taught of, you know, certainly the science and engineering, but they, I think, appreciated, you know, this sort of right-left brain balance. And they, they also infused quite a bit of art and appreciation into the curriculum. And so, for example, when you became a junior and a senior, you could, you know, specialize and to concentrate or you know take a major if you will in all kinds of disciplines and they were all of the engineering's your usual suspects civil engineering mechanical electrical engineer computer science but they also had graphic art 
Uh, and we had a class that was called Foundry, which was really cool because you created things and you kind of made things out of clay and you kind of build things. And it was kind of like a shop class, like an industrial shop class. And it just gave you this opportunity to sort of like, you know, create and just kind of play with stuff. And so I think that was a really good balance. So I didn't feel so bad, you know, and everyone had to take a class called technical drawing. So I was like, all right, I'm drawing something. <laughs> it may not be, it may not be graffiti, but I have my T-square and I'm drawing lines and I'm creating things. And, and technical drawing was really, uh, really uh, a great class to take because it was, it was kind of refined drawing, but there was still a lot of element of creativity infused. So it was great. It sounds like you really made the best of this situation yeah. and took the positive, uh, positive direction. My son uh, got into high school and he said, Dad, I want to get into drama and I want to do music and so on. And I'm, I'm thinking, great, because I'm a music teacher myself and uh, always loved music and the arts. And he loved music and drama throughout high school. But then he said, but I've always wanted to be a scientist and I want to go to a university and study math and science so it's kind of like a twist on what happened to you and then he went to university he's 19 now and he studies uh math and science and he wants to be a theoretical physicist and he's wow. well on his way so uh just a little bit of a different story that's awesome well congrats on that that's awesome yeah thank you well dr teta how can we change the world through healing uh that's a really good question well I, you know, I know your audience is prepared for my 10 hour answer to that. But, uh, <laughs> We're prepared. I'm, I'm really excited to hear it. And, and I believe in healing, but I don't know how we're going to do this. So I want to yeah. hear from you. Well, I'll try and I'll try and uh, I'll share a story with you that I think may answer the question in, in a sort of indirect way, but pro perhaps give sort of the direct message of everyone, I think, has an ability to heal another individual. I, whether or not you have the degree or credential and, and you know, you're an MD and RN or, or what have you, or even a healthcare professional, I think every one of us at an individual level really has this ability to impact another human. And that's why the book is called The Art of Human Care, not The Art of Healthcare, because it's human care. And everyone that is a citizen of the world is a human, and therefore they are able to impact the lives of others. I'll give you a very brief example. So when I was in undergrad, I had a professor who took a great interest in sort of my career and what I was interested in. And he was a history professor. And he really wanted me to become a history major. And I told him, I said, well, I, you know, I'm kind of got this medical thing going on. I'm a biochem major, you know, but I, I really love history too. And I, and I, I just really enjoyed this class. And, uh, you know, sort of through the years after taking his class, we kept in touch. And just before I was kind of off to you know, my, my grad school and before even my application, he said, you know, you really have this innate ability and this, you know, affinity for service. He said, you should consider the, the Kennedy School. And I said, the Kennedy School, I said, what, what's that? I've never heard of it. He said, well, it's a school, uh, it's at Harvard and it's for uh, public policy. And I was like, wow, that's, uh, that sounds amazing, you know, because at the time I was involved in student government. I was sort of a student activist. And if you had a great job at the time that I would apply for, it would have probably been, you know, vice president for the student body or something like that. So I was really interested in this. And I sent away for the application and it came and I had that application and a stack of medical school applications. And I was like, ah, there's no way I'm going to get into Harvard. I'm not going to apply. So I never applied. So fast forward, you know, almost 10 years, 15 years later, 
I go to medical school, I go to residency, I be, join the Navy, I go to, I go to a fellowship in Minnesota, and I have an opportunity to go to Boston because sitting in a call room one day in Minnesota, decades past that conversation I had with this one professor, I say to him, I, I, you know, I say to myself, oh, you know, maybe I should revisit this Kennedy School um, you know, opportunity because now I'm a little bit more senior. I've got some other credentials behind me and it would be a great opportunity because I could potentially, you know, do some clinical work and, uh, in the Kennedy school. I got into the Kennedy school and I also had an opportunity to, to work at the Brigham and women's hospital at the same time. So I was like doing two full-time things, masters in public administration. And I had this great experience working at, you know, the Harvard medical school affiliate of Brigham and women's hospital with these great cardiac surgeons learning all this stuff. And I say to myself, wow, I should reach back out to my professor. And I learned that he was sick. Oh. He, was, he was actually really ill, Bruce. And in fact, he had been diagnosed with a metastatic renal cancer. Oh. And he had lesions in his lung. And so when I got in touch with him, I could tell in his voice that he was really hurting. And he was really just kind of like just deflated because he was trying to get a surgeon to take care, a look at his case and to give him a second opinion because they kind of wrote him off for a little bit. And they said, well, you have metastatic disease. You have these lesions in your lung. We're not sure if they can be treated. And he wanted to be seen in Dartmouth, which was in New Hampshire, which was not too far from where he was living. Well, it turns out, Bruce, while I was there, just like literally a week before, I had met one of the alumni from our program at the Brigham who happened to be a thoracic surgeon, guess where? at Dartmouth. I make a phone call. I get them in touch. That surgeon winds up taking care of my professor that told me about this Kennedy School you know, opportunity. He goes on to live another six plus years, Bruce. In that wow. time, he writes a book. He takes care of his grandkids. He speaks all over the country about cancer survival. And before he died, I would tell this story. And it was such a great story to tell because I'm like, he's alive and he's doing all these great things. He defined what living was all about. He was not a doctor. He was not a healthcare professional. He was simply another human being that took an interest in a kid from Brooklyn that saw a little spark in him and said, hey, you should do this thing. How could you do the calculus, Bruce, to say that all those years later, what you did, a simple act of kindness, a little gesture, a little advice, just a little positive energy would come back in such a way and give you that return on investment. So that's why I say that's what human care is all about. It's that little, it's just that connection, that just taking an interest in what Bruce is about and say, hey, you should try this, or can I help you in some small way? And that didn't cost him anything. And it was something that would come back in such a way that would bless him and give him an extension on his life in a way that is just incalculable. Now, that's just one story of so many. So these little human connections that we have, and you think about these moments and these pivotal times, it really is incredible in terms of how that, that can change the world. So to answer your question, how do you change the world? Just care about someone else. That's really it. It's not that hard, it's very simple. That is an incredible story. That is just like I'm sitting here and like my eyes are welling up and I'm like, oh my gosh, it just gave me shivers for you to tell this story about what an incredible difference it made. And, and we just never know. You never what, know. And, and look at that. That's the degree. That's it right there. That's the Harvard degree. And it wouldn't have happened without him. 
you know, I mean, just giving me that little pearl. And, and I, you know, I had it for those years and I carried along, and, you know, year after year, I revisited. And that one time I just happened to revisit it and it turned into something that, you know, created such a, a great blessing for me in my life and my family um, and and just cascaded into this this ripple effect that, you know, came back to to in such a really good way to, to be a positive thing for for someone who years, years, years before just took an interest and just cared. Well, another story that you tell in your book, which is absolutely incredible and, and has had so much impact in your life, is the story of your near-death experience. Could you right. share a bit of that with us? Right. So in that same undergrad college, like a college was very formative for me, as you could tell. Yeah. <laughs> I had great professors, great uh, instructors, absolutely great friends. I mean, friends that I'm, you know, still brothers and sisters with to this day. But uh, during my junior year of, of, of college, I got uh, uh, an, actually an invitation and an offer to come interview on an early decision to Johns Hopkins, the medical school. I was just like ecstatic. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be a doctor, this would be awesome. And go to Hopkins, no less, right? Like, you know, we couldn't get any better than that. At the time for me, I was just like, this is amazing. So I fly down to Baltimore, I go on this great interview, and I am convinced that I'm gonna be, uh, you know, getting an acceptance letter in a few days and on my way to, to Hopkins. And I was going to have a really relaxed and calm senior year without having to worry about all this application and MCATs and all that. Well, I come back and within days, Bruce, I am deathly ill. I have a fever, I have chills, I have aches, I have this stiff neck, and I just am like just in so much pain. So I do what any college kid does. I try and like, you know, kind of poo-poo it and say it's going to get better, but, you know, it just overwhelmed me. So finally, after a couple of days of this, I go to the infirmary. It was a Friday, and it was a Friday afternoon, I, Friday or late morning, early afternoon, I get to the infirmary, and while I'm in the infirmary, uh, they issue a diagnosis, which actually turns out to be an incorrect diagnosis, but fortunately, the therapy, to some extent, may have prolonged my life to some extent, and that was, they gave me some penicillin tablets. Said you have a stomach flu, it's probably some bug you, you probably had something that you ate that wouldn't agree with you. You know, just go back to your room and just, uh, you know, hang out for the weekend, drink lots of fluid. Well, I couldn't keep anything down. I was throwing up. I was just getting more and more sick as the hours went by. This was before cell phones. This was before, you know, any kind of social media. So none of this was going on. I happened to be in a fraternity at the time and my fraternity brothers and I were having this social event on a Friday, you know, Friday evening. And no one could find where I was. So they thought I was trying to dodge and get out of the work and the, the sort of preparation. But it turns out I was just holed up in my dorm room and I was an RA. So I didn't have a, a resident assistant. So I didn't have a, a roommate. And so my fraternity brothers come looking for me. And fortunately, they found me, were able to get into my room. And when they found me, I was almost lethargic and unresponsive in my bed. And, um, you know, they, they carried me to the local uh, hospital. Uh, in, 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 in upstate New York, where I was. And in that hospital, um, you can imagine, here it is, a Friday evening in a college town. Uh, some kid is coming in unresponsive, being carried by two other guys with a big and burly. And, you know, what does that look like? Oh, if he yeah. must have done something, it's too much to drink. And, and they're like insisting, he doesn't drink, he doesn't take any drugs, nothing happened, you know, something's wrong with him. And it was, you know, a testament to the folks that took care of me there that, you know, they had the presence of mind to say, hey, you know, something might really be wrong here. And they 
had the differential diagnosis of uh, trying to rule out bacterial meningitis, which is what I ultimately had. Uh, yeah, and that care that, that they rendered for me literally saved my life. I went on to spend several weeks in the hospital with a tube in every orifice of the body. Um, and throughout that whole time, I was convinced that I had a letter of acceptance waiting for me from Johns Hopkins. So that's what I think kept me alive. <laughs> that was my mindfulness, you know, power to kind of keep me going. Uh, and, and I get out of the hospital and uh, unfortunately I got rejected from Hopkins. <laughs> so, but, uh, but during that whole time, I was convinced I was going to be a doctor and I had to live and had to kind of make it through. Right. So that experience was really formative, as you can imagine, because here I was a patient at a very young age with a diagnosis that was, you know, potentially lethal, should have been lethal by every account. I survived it. And it just engendered in me this sort of empathy for what I now recognize and realize my patients are going through when they're in that, op, you know, when they're in an operating room holding area or they're in the, the ward or they're in the ICU and they're, you know, full of anxiety, full of doubt and uncertainty. They don't know what's going on and they're vulnerable and can't do for themselves. I experienced all of that. I know what that feels like. And I think that helps me carry, uh, you know, a, a bit of a different kind of perspective when I approach my patients. I'm sure it does. And that was an incredible story to read in your book as well. And I can't emphasize enough how how impactful your book was on me, not only the, the beautiful way that you communicate, but the artwork was just incredible too. I want to share a quote that is from your book, Dr. Tata. The, the quote is this, and it's about uh, positively changing the world, which is what you do every day. And the quote is, with health, wisdom reveals itself. Art becomes manifest. We have strength to fight life's challenges. Our wealth becomes useful. We may apply our intelligence and positively change the world for generations. And that's why it's so exciting to talk to you in person because that's what you're do doing. That's what you're teaching and sharing you're, you're saving the world one patient at a time, which is what you talk about in your book. How can we turn our passion into a purpose, no matter what it is? Yeah, well, I talk about this in the book. I, I, I like to think I outline not necessarily the answer in, 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 in so far as I suggest what one could, you know, use in terms of a method for discovering their purpose, because that's a very personal deeply individual thing, you know, to ask someone, what's their purpose? It's like, it's almost like a, you know, it's almost like an enigmatic question. Like, what do you mean? What's my purpose? Like, you know, that's, that's like a very challenging thing to ask. Well, it turns out that I believe your finding of your purpose is not something that you can kind of just sit around and just have the answer just come to you. I think it happens in the act of doing something for others. And in that act of doing something for others, one then discovers their purpose. What you're doing now, you're sharing these stories with your guests that come on your podcast and that story and that message and the questions that you ask, you're doing something that is helping to inspire people, to help them gain a different perspective on a problem or challenge they may have, to help identify with some of the things that their guests 
your guests are, are, are sort of conveying to the audience. And in that way, your purpose is developing this platform and this forum for people to come and get inspiration and get help and assistance to develop their mindfulness. I mean, you may not think that that's your purpose, but, you know, I would suggest that that is one of your purposes. So when you're doing something for others, I think it's in this way that your purpose sort of becomes manifest. Now, why is art like that? Art is art is a beautiful thing. You know, I, I, I'd be remiss if, if I didn't give some credit to that quote. That quote is such a powerful quote. And I first discovered elements of that quote that, that I sort of, you know, as an artist, stole as an artist, if you will to sort of rework it for what was meaningful in my life because health has always been foundational. Like I realize that when you don't have health, it's one of those things that you take for granted until you lose it. And when you don't have health, then all of a sudden nothing else matters. And I would, when I was, in, when I was a fellow in Minnesota, so very cold winter Minnesota, I became very sick with a flu. And I used to walk past this wall every day, like in the tunnels, everything was connected by tunnels. And it was this huge mural quote. And this quote said, when health is absent, wisdom cannot reveal itself. Strength cannot fight. Wealth becomes useless. Intelligence cannot be applied. And I was like, wow, I walk past this thing every day, never paid any attention to it. I don't feel very well right now. And now that thing is hitting me like, like, like a, it's clobbering me over my head, like an anvil dropped on my head. And I was like, who said that? That's brilliant. And it turns out it was a quote from a person named Herophilus of Chalcedon, who happened to be the personal physician to Alexander the Great. And I was like, what wisdom? I'm sure this Herophilus guy must have figured out you know what? In all the things that matter in the world, the one thing that is really the most important is foundationally health, because it's kind of like Maslow's triangle. Without health, the safety and food and water and shelter potentially, but even health before all of those things, none of those other things matter. Because if you're not feeling well, nothing tastes good. You don't even want to drink. You can't keep anything down. Are you really feeling miserable? It doesn't matter where you are. You're just uncomfortable, you know? So health is just this really important, critical element that is foundational and builds upon everything else that becomes possible. You take the wealthiest person in the world and you take away their health, nothing matters. They could have all the money in the world, but they can't buy health. It just becomes meaningless. You know, when you're not feeling well, and I've seen this in the military, when, when I've taken care of generals and, and these big flag officers and, and you know, and they become sick with a stomach flu, all of a sudden, like their ability to lead and to, to be engaged with the fight, it just completely becomes non-existent. So health to me was this foundational, very important thing. And so that's why I lead with that. And I have that quote in there when it says, when health is present, you can do all of these things and you really do positively change the world because that is like the key foundational element. Now, in our current state of affairs, in a global pandemic, you know, I think that message now resonates more than ever. And if you haven't been impacted by COVID or don't know someone that has been impacted by by family or friends, you can't help but think, you know, how much of an impact the, the threat to our health has had on our whole global society, politically, economically, socially, technologically, in all of these ways. So I think that quote just really embodies, you know, something that I think has been observed throughout the ages. And, uh, and, and it really speaks, I think, to the true element of how important and foundational health is and how it precedes everything else that comes. 
Well, that is an incredible quote, and I'm so glad you mentioned it today because, yes, it is just is so powerful. And yeah, uh, COVID has certainly impacted us. My wife is a critical care nurse, so she's been looking after a lot of COVID patients. And and I mean, some people don't take it as seriously as they should, but she truly does because she's right there, as you can imagine. Well, you are really doing incredible things to impact people and help people understand the importance of healthcare. I want to also ask you um, about bullying because I always ask a question about this on my show. Has there ever been a situation where you were bullied or where you were dealing with bullying and where maybe mindfulness would have made a difference? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think like every young child, I've definitely been bullied. I grew up in Brooklyn. That probably, you know, happened more often than not. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, I discovered a meditation and, and um, really, you know, took it to heart, you know, no pun intended, uh, after I got back from my uh, deployment in Afghanistan. And, and I will tell you that it has been a tremendous tool in, in sort of the quiver that I have to deal with all the, the you know, the, the challenges of life, because it just, it helps me to stay focused. It gives me this innate sense of calm and peace. And yeah, it would have been great to have that, you know, uh, that, that uh, you know, ability and that, you know, sort of, you know, resource. When I think about all of the challenges I face, like going to and from school and and, and, and running into some nefarious characters that would, uh, you know, aim to do me harm. But um, yeah, I think uh, it is it is something that I found such value and tremendous benefit to that I actually, you know, got my son to to learn how to meditate, you know, when he was sort of in his his, his very early adolescent years. And, and he's a teenager now. And, and uh, but, you know, very young, at a very young age, you know, I kind of introduced him to it and he actually embraced it and he started to and he started to meditate as well. And he, he actually found a lot of value out of it. And I, I, I remind him, particularly now that he's in the stress of, of, of a high school, you know, sort of rigorous curriculum that, you know, he should revisit that. And, and certainly if he has any challenges, whether it be bullying or whether it be academics or, or just life, you know, it's a way to sort of bring yourself back to this presence give you the calm and the space to sort of look at the world and your life and where you fit into it sort of holistically. And what it really does for me is gives me this opportunity to have this moment where I can have gratitude. And that is really what has been so helpful. It's because when you stop and, and just kind of think uh, and put into perspective like where you are and the fact that you're still alive and no matter how bad it is in the world right now and how bad your life is, you may still actually have this opportunity to reverse or change your situation because you're still here, you're still alive. And if you have your health, then you have a lot going for you and you can, uh, you can right all those wrongs that you think you might be experiencing. Yeah, it's so true. Well, your book is called The Art of Human Care, and your website is drteta.com. And I'm going to spell that, Mindful Tribe, so that you can check this out. Doctor, spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R. Teta is T-E-T-T-E-H. So drteta.com. Check it out. I want to ask you five quick answer questions, Dr. Teta, about uh, just various things to do with mindfulness. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? 
one person that's been of mindfulness presence in my Victor Frankel. Ah. For your audience, he's the gentleman that wrote the man's search for meaning, right? I, I think when we are all mindful, we're always trying to find meaning. And, and he wrote a book about it. And he wrote a very powerful book about it, a very brief but very powerful book about it and about his experience as the Auschwitz prisoner. And uh, it, it, was a, it was one of my favorite books. It is one of my favorite books. And, and it's something that, you know, embodies a lot of uh, growth for me as I, as I revisit it from time to time. Yes, it's an incredibly powerful book for sure. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Dr. Teta? Ah, you know, I have been uncharacteristically called uh, an atypical cardiac surgeon. (laughs) 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 Because in the operating room, everyone always says, how come he's so calm? How does he remain so calm? He seems so nice. Mindfulness (laughs) and just taking time and his peace and the presence of mind. That's how it's impacted me. It's given me, I think... uh, a great amount of equanimity at times of duress. Well, tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness. Uh, It's very central and it's foundational to just keeping myself centered. And I also believe it helps to regulate my heart rate. And it it, it always, I I wear one of these sensor watches. So I'm always proud of myself when I have my resting heart rate in the 40s. And, and if oh, wow. I'm really good, I can get it down like all the way down to like 41, 42. I'm also a runner, so I should, you know, qualify that. I don't take any beta blockers or anything like that. So it's always my way of saying to myself, ah, I'm doing well. I'm, my, my heart rate is, is maintaining itself. That's very impressive. Wow. Uh, if you could recommend a book related to mindfulness other than your own, which is fantastic, The Art of Human Care, what book would you recommend? Uh, well, this was another classic. I would recommend The Alchemist by uh, Paulo Coelho because it's a really neat story. It has a universal theme in it of one trying to find their treasure, right? I think we all you know, have this quest, if you will, of trying to search and find your treasure. And I, I won't spoil the book for anyone who's never read it, but suffice to say, you don't need to look so far because sometimes your treasure is right in front of you. I'll just leave it at that. So true. So true. Can you share an app that somehow helps with mindfulness in one way or another? Uh, well, I use a lot of different meditation apps, uh, but there's one that I, I don't know if I can remember the name. I just kind of know I press on the icon, but it gives me a, a timer. I think it's called meditation and it's time, it has a timer on it. So it gives me like a little a little bell and uh, and I could set the time for when I want to have my moment and my quietness and uh, and I use that. Sorry, I don't know the exact thing. Oh, oh, that's okay. I find the same thing really helps me too. Just having a timer for, you know, meditating at a certain time. So when you meditate, do you meditate at various times during the day? Do you have a routine where you always meditate at the same time in the morning or what's it like? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I try and do it in the morning because <clears throat> that may be the time that I have the most control over the world before things sort of spin out of control. Uh, doing it in the evening is sometimes a bit challenging. Uh, and I also try and do a very brief, you know, sort of mindfulness exercise, a little prayer and, and, a, and a little pause before I operate. And, uh, and so right, 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 uh, right as I'm above the sink and I wash my hands, I, it gives me a, a moment to sort of like, you know, get rid of all of the distractions and and just focus on the patient and the task at hand. Dr. Tata, you are just so happy and you seem so grounded and so relaxed. What do you attribute that to? 
Well, I think I attribute it to many things. I attribute it to support and of my friends and family, uh, you know, having a purpose, which is a great purpose, which is getting, you know, this huge opportunity and honor to take care of patients and to do things that will, you know, potentially impact their lives, save their lives. But it's the daily exposure. And because I'm a transplant, you know, heart and lung surgeon that I have this um, uh, view into people's lives at, at, at both spectrums of them, sort of at the end of life and then, you know, sort of the beginning of a new life, if you will, with a new organ. And, um, you know, Bruce, it's that opportunity to kind of see the demise and the, 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 the tragic loss of someone that becomes a, a donor because it's usually a trauma. It's, it's some catastrophic event. It may even be a suicide, but it's something very tragic. It's something you know, final, and you have the grieving family, you have the patient, and and they've made a decision to be a donor. Well, every time I look at those stories, and just when I think, oh, I, I can't believe I've seen that, it's awful, 18-year-old, you know, MVA, oh my gosh, you left the house, you know, mom and dad said, hey, just we'll see you later, and never comes back home. It's those moments of thinking to myself, wow, every day really is a gift. Like, I know you hear it saying, it's saying, it's, it's said in a cliche way. It's a, sometimes just lost on you. But I see that every day with these donors. You know, it's always some tragic story. Every time I think I can never hear a more tragic story, I hear another one that's even more tragic than the first one. And then on the other side, it's when you bring that heart or that lung back. And now this person who literally is like, you know, one, two, three weeks, maybe a few months away from dying, if they don't get this organ, have this new lease on life. And you see how they're living every day, like every day for them is a gift because they're like waiting and waiting and waiting. And, and, and each day that goes by, they're coming closer and closer to what they know is going to be their end. And they get this organ and then they get this renewal that is just, you know, it's just palpable, it's inspirational. So for me to be in the balance of both of those worlds, you know, to see this and then to see that, I kind of say to myself, wow, I'm, I'm in a place where, you know, that person would probably like to be right now and this person would like to be, and how could you not be grateful for that? How could you, how could you spend time thinking about, oh my gosh, my life is so terrible. You can't, I mean, I can't, because it would just be not only hypocritical, it would be foolish because, people would trade places for it, you know, to have what you have in a moment, you know, and, and it has nothing to do with riches. It has nothing to do with wealth and position and power or anything like that. It just simply has to do with having the ability to just enjoy and live life. And that is a true gift. It really is a true gift. You know, you're going to laugh. I had so many questions written down for you about your <laughs> yes. book and about your life and, and everything else. I feel like I can talk to you, Dr. Teta, for another two or three hours because you are just so down to earth and you have such a, a genuine desire to help the world and to help people. And, and I love the fact that you want to do it through healing and through uh, through art as well. So do you do some art now in your life? I do. Yeah. So, so as I told you, my daughter, you know, <laughs> we have, so we have a little room in our home. It's not very big, but it's just a little place where we have all the art supplies. So I go in there and I, and I, you know, sometimes I draw and I, 
I try and uh, do some painting and things like that. I also garden. So I've been, I picked that up lately. I don't know. It must be, it must be a sign of my age. So I'm starting to do gardening. And to me, it's very artistic because gardening is like, I have this uh, garden out in our, in our backyard and I created a heart with some stones and I have some, some plants in it. So that was, that was my like creative exercise. And my wife and my son, my daughter, they saw me out there, uh, for hours one day they were like what is he doing out there and i had this vision in my mind of what i wanted to do and after a few hours it actually looked like something like a heart <laughs> it was pretty cool so yeah i do i mean through various ways right and what kind of flowers did you put into that dr teta i put some uh i put some ivy and oh. i have some lavender oh yeah, yeah. and lavender is, is fun to grow and it looks so incredible when it blooms well thank you so much for being a guest on the show and uh of course we know your website is drtetta.com d-o-c-t-o-r-t-e-t-t-e-h do you have any final words for us dr tetta as we kind of wrap up the interview it's been so much fun talking to you oh likewise i've had a i've had a terrific i've had a terrific time talking to you as well I think one of the things I've been trying to impress upon people is even though we're going through some really hard times right now, I'm a, I'm a student of pandemics. I loved studying about pandemics and so I feel like, wow, now we're living through one. And so I, I've, I've certainly experienced many of the things that your wife has experienced, the grief and you know, lost family members, et cetera, and, and see it on a present day basis with my uh, own practice. Um, but I, I would like to say maybe the thing I'd like to impart everyone with is in your mindfulness and in those moments when you are, you know, in the quiet and in the stillness, just think about, you know, the things you do have to be grateful for, you know, uh, your health, um, the fact that you're still here and the opportunity that we have as a collective, you know, sort of human race, if you will, and, and here in this country in particular, to really emerge from this crisis in, in, a, in a better way and think about how you can evolve from this, this process and in, in this bad and challenging time to sort of get yourself to a higher place. Yeah. Well, thanks for that advice. And thanks for coming on the show today, Dr. Ted. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye now. Okay. Take care. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. You can see the show notes for every episode at mindfulnessmode.com and you can just type the guest's name into the search bar. And I have something for you, Mindful Tribe, and that's a book that I've put together featuring the top 12 books that people have recommended on the Mindfulness Mode podcast. Just go to mindfulnessmode.com slash top 12 books and that small ebook is yours free thanks again for joining us and just take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm focus and happiness stay in the mode